Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijong, a culture writer and critic. This week, we are leaving the world of TV and talking about two films. One is Promising Young Woman, which you can get on VOD pretty much anywhere, and Sound of Metal, which you can stream on Amazon. Right, so this week, Jenny, how have you been, sweetheart? How's uh, the world treating you? (laughs) I've been okay. Aside from, you know, everything in the world. um... Don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, but strictly speaking of, like, my living room and my TV, I'm kind of intrigued by some news we got recently. The Netflix new movie a week promise. Yeah, batshit. So Netflix launched a whole little promo video saying that they were going to release a movie every week for the year of 2021 Mm -hmm. um and initially i was like fuck off (laughs) leave me alone (laughs) because it just feels so excessive but at the same time obviously this makes so much sense what were your thoughts on it i'm not gonna lie I'm, i'm excited because there just have not really been that many films coming out let alone you know like yeah the new releases that are like kind of buzzy they don't really have anywhere to go. Um, so they've been stuck in like theatrical release that no one's going to see mm. or like on demand or whatever. Um, this at least is more stuff. Of course, the question yeah. is like, is it going to be actually good stuff or just like, is this going to be like the, the strain of like Netflix content that's like pure shit? Like the stuff they get, they buy that, right. that no one wants. Yeah. I mean, when, when obviously when the, like the pandemic first happened and everyone went into a panic about production, I think everyone for the most part, especially within the industry, knew that Netflix had a back catalogue of a fuck ton of production. So if anyone was going to, you know, stay standing at the end of it, it was going to be them. The thing is, is that still no one was anticipating that productions would be this frozen or this hindered for this long. Um, And obviously all the other platforms have started scrambling. A lot of TV networks have, you know, launched their own platforms and trying to kind of struggle it out that way. I think the thing that really lit a fuse for everyone was when HBO Max finally said that they were just going to release films on HBO Max to stream on the same day that films were going to come out in movie theaters yeah and these like big big movies too these big productions yeah which huge news that i think threw everyone into a fucking tizzy including our favorite king of tizzy uh christopher nolan (laughs) and like everyone was just like oh my god this is the end of cinema as we know it's the end of the movie theater and it's just like it fucking isn't but it did do something it did shift something with the streaming world and then so obviously what this with this netflix news it, this is basically turned into the streaming arms race yeah. of of this year and next year i'm guessing yeah and i think disney plus also maybe a week or two ago they also announced like a whole bunch of new shit it is like yeah disney, i mean disney like they just went they are extrapolating every strand of ip that they can possibly get they're just like everything's gonna be universe yeah everything's gonna be universe like i mean recently they had one division which was their first kind of you know export out of that but yeah the this netflix news is is completely understandable you kidding me like it's now gonna turn into who gets to win at the end of this the question that you asked about is this just gonna be a whole sludge of shit that we have to kind of wade through yeah i I mean the jury's still out you know but wade we will we will yeah we will wade Okay, so speaking of movies, um, 
like Pellin said, we're finally back on them this week. So what movie did you watch, Pellin? So I watched the much-anticipated, much-talked-about Promising Young Woman. It was in the critics' little chatter because every, every one of them dickheads had a screener. Um, and Which I we did ended too. up watching it last week, the last yeah. minute screener, because yeah. we were in the bottom tier of them fucking critics. Um, so, Promising Young Woman is written and directed by Emerald Fennell, who wrote Killing Eve season two. Uh, don't hold that against her, though, because <laughs> I initially did. She's also, if you, if you know, she's also an actress. She was, uh, she plays Camilla in The Crown. But oh. Yeah, Shit, I have no idea. Yeah. So the trailer for this came out a while ago. It was meant to be in movie theaters. It stars Carrie Mulligan and a whole, like a pretty heavy body of, of supporting actors, including yeah. Laverne Cox, Bo Burnham, Alison Brie, Alfred Molina, amongst many others. The reason why it had so much of a chatter about it is because it, it was basically labeled a Me Too movie. But TLDR, it's a story about a 30-year-old med school dropout played by Carrie Mulligan. She spends her days working at a coffee shop and then her evenings basically pretending to be drunk and baiting predatory men, just, I guess, to teach them a lesson by last minute sobering up and then freaking them out. So that that's kind of like the premise. But then the majority of the film is about her on the path of revenge uh, related to something that happened to her best friend back when they were at med school and basically was the reason that they dropped out. I don't want to give away too much. This is going to be a really hard conversation to have without giving spoilers because so much of our discussion is about the things that happened throughout the film. But before we do any of that, Jenny, what did you think of it? I liked it. I yeah. I didn't really expect to. I didn't have like high expectations, but I thought it was interesting at least and fun to watch and dark to watch. Yeah. I thought it was like for what it was, which is like essentially a like a rape revenge fantasy thriller. I thought it handled it pretty well. Yeah, it made me angry in the the right ways. Yeah. But also, it's it's interesting because we are in you know quote unquote the Me Too time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite fit in with where we are like at the moment in terms of that movement right now, I think Mm -mm, I almost would expect to see this kind of thing from, you know, 10, seven years ago. Yeah. I I get what you mean. I do agree with that. However, does this still happen? Yeah. Like absolutely. Like the way that it plays out, it's evergreen, which is really fucking sad. Yeah. I'm the same way. I honestly, when I watched the trailer, I rolled my eyes a couple of times when I was watching it, where we're just like, Oh fuck me. This is going to be, insufferable um not as insufferable as i thought it would be and a little bit a little bit cleverer than i thought it would be also so in terms of like my overall takeaways of it i thought the first act like the first 30 minutes was not great but then it just kind of ramped up once she set her eyes on the revenge and then it just got better and better and better as the film went on Leading up to that scene, the final scene, which I thought was incredibly strong, um, or the penultimate scene, my bad. Yeah, I. it made me think a lot of, I wouldn't say complicated thoughts, but it did make me feel a little bit torn because I hated the dialogue. I hated the way that she spoke and the, the way that the men spoke. It felt forced in. It, everything kind of felt a little bit too on the nose at times. It felt like basically like a student theater version of whatever it was trying to be. 
I thought genre wise, there are elements of like it being like a sort of absurdist piece. There are elements of it being yeah. like it could be a satire. It could be like a sort of cartoonish, you know, comic book antihero kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I wonder, I mean, I didn't like particularly look to it to be natural or realistic, I guess, right, um, because right, right. especially in the end, it really just like flies off the rails. But I'm sure like even within whatever genre combination it could have been, I, I think, yeah, of course, there is like always room for more natural sounding dialogue or yeah. the kind of rapport between characters. I, I thought that too, because it, it did feel like those conversations in real life are so painfully predictable however it just because you didn't really understand the intention of of Carrie Mulligan's character Cassie it felt a little bit I don't know like building up a sense of eeriness about her that didn't actually need to be there initially but then she came to be a little bit more complicated as it went on which I think made it stronger for her um, and then stronger with all of her interactions I know what you mean about the satire especially with regards to the way that it looked I kind of loved it to be honest (laughs) It yeah. felt really like pop gum, pink, pastels. Um, I like the tune, yeah. Yeah, like, like really the, Lolita style. And yeah. the Paris Hilton song yeah. and stuff like that. Like the, the sugariness of the mm-hmm. way that it looked, as opposed to like the bitterness of whatever was happening on screen was, was really smart. I guess, so this is, this is where we kind of go into more spoiler territory. So just a heads up if you haven't watched it, skip ahead. But in terms of like scenes that stuck with you, there were some that stuck with me and I'd love to hear as because you just watched it. Yeah. Was there anything that really stuck out to you? The scenes where, you know, she was with the character played by Bo Burnham. Those came across as like very like they had pretty good chemistry together and like a yeah. very easy sort of back and forth um, that I thought was charming yeah. and sort of more believable in terms of their dialogue. And so mm-hmm. that just makes, you know, everything that comes afterward even more devastating and tragic yeah. in a way. But then I also love the scene with you know, where she, she tracks down a lawyer and, you know, unexpectedly the lawyer feels guilty and like it wants some sort of redemption from this terrible thing that he's done uh, yeah. years ago. And I thought that was also a strong scene in, in terms of just like it just shaking Cassie to the core. Yeah. And it, I, yeah, I think it adds a little bit more dimension to the idea of revenge and, and guilt and redemption. And there's like ultimate payoff in the end. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about revenge and justice with stories like this one. Especially with regards to like rape revenge stories. There's always a sense of, obviously there's violence, there's a sense of retribution that happens. But it's always very complicated and I think it's been getting more and more complicated as time goes on. Especially now most people's awakening of understanding how broken the system is like with regards to like the justice system. What is it like watching it? Because I loved the conclusion that it came to but I also know that Emerald Fennel had a different ending for it that oh, really? basically got written out. Yeah. So Do you know, did she say like what that ending would have been? Yes. So huge spoiler alert. So instead of them coming to arrest him she they were just gonna have the wedding and that was it oh okay no one was gonna get entirely different yeah which i actually i before knowing this i kind of would have preferred that to happen and i want to say why even though again the ending is very satisfying and i think it did kind of tie all up together in a a nice little bow and it's it also did work i would have preferred that ending just because that's real life 
I, I think with regards to revenge films or films like fantasy, revenge fantasy films, the point is driven home so much more when it's more true to real life because what you end up doing when you showcase something that wouldn't happen in real life is it's even more depressing. I understand seeing a reality that plays out on screen and that fantastical element. It just feels so much more of a fantasy, which makes it even more depressing when you come back to life after the film ends mm. and you realize that that wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have seen that play out. Um, I, I think I, I saw a little bit differently or, or mm. maybe my opinion's a little bit different. I think once you know we get into the third act and it fully becomes a sort of larger than life over the top event sort of unfolding in a way that I felt was like soundly absurdist and kind of like surreal yeah even like more fantasy um then I think I was like all in it for the the sort of fantastical ending that happened which I totally agree this is like not something that you can really expect um when you think about what happens in our real life everyday life but I think because it was within the this pattern of like escalation into fantasy. I kind of bought into it and I was like, there's no way I know this. There's no way this happens in real life. But also like I almost saw it as like illustrating what any sort of like resolution like this, the cost of that, which is like spoiler for the next 20, 30 seconds, which like the cost of it is a, a life like in more than one life because overall there were multiple lives lost so i thought almost of it almost of it like as like a like a knowing suicide mission with a nod and wink and almost like sacrifice by this main character yeah. um, because she knows that this is the cost of getting any sort of sense of justice or right uh, resolution yeah i mean that was fantastic i thought like the fact that she goes into a situation knowing that she might end up dead as a result of it, like that speaks volumes. The, the, the scene that stuck with me the most was, again, spoiler, two male characters are looking at each other, like two best friends are looking at each other and they're just like, this is not your fault. This is not your fault, even though it is clearly his fault. Yeah. And the way that this this guy who is now being convinced that what he did was entirely not his fault, accepts it and accepts it so readily. And that's the belief system that everything is built upon. That, to me, would have been enough. Like, that, you know, uh, everything that happens after, up until, you know, the very last scene, would have been fine with me. Um, In terms of, like, ending it there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. you You know what I thought a lot about when I was watching it? It made me think a lot about I May Destroy You because... It came to the same conclusions, basically, in terms of what does a justice look like after something like this happens to a woman? Like, why does she feel the need to be vindicated in her beliefs by the very people that put her in that situation in the first place? What does it mean to be on the way to, you know, a, on, a, on a path of recovery from a trauma like that? And, you know, is it dependent on you seeking revenge? Like, no, like, basically, no. And that's the sad thing about the main character, which I thought was really, really clever, was that even though you understand her rage, the way that it, it the film explored how miserable she was and how yeah. much of her own life was on hold while she did this. But I thought Carrie Mulligan was great. How did you feel about her? I thought it was good. I I mean, the character herself is so such a study of like restraint and yeah. um, careful control that it's it's hard to get you know the sort of widely 
explosive displays out of her um, until a few moments she does when she actually does lose it. So that's why I remember like, you know, the tears sort of running her, down her face when she thinks about, you know, the sort of uh, sense of guilt and lesson that the lawyer has already learned. And when she just looks truly shaken, um, when she realizes Bo Burnham's character, like his role um, and, you know, the true person he's revealed to be, um, they're the sort of quieter moments when you see truly like the shell of this character who holds herself so tightly and so so hard yeah. um, when you see those shaken. And I think that's what Carrie Mulligan is really good at. Yeah. Um, she is yeah. perfect at playing like quiet characters with just like this unbelievable core of steel. But when like the, the mask and the shell comes off, you see the true vulnerability and how you know emotive she is in different ways. Yeah. So it's just another like as usual, like great performance by her. Um it's it does tend to fit in with a lot of characters she has played before, but uh, you know, she's really good at this. Yeah. Like there are certain moments with regards to Bo Burnham's character, especially who by the way, like shout out to Bo Burnham. He was so good in this. Like just didn't expect him to be this charismatic yeah Um, me neither (laughs) yeah there's like there's like a really listen if you're a woman that has dated men fuck me there were so many moments in this but in her first date with Bo Burnham it's going really well and then they're walking supposedly to the movie theater and then he leads her to his apartment like the the entrance of his apartment and that like ruins everything and he realizes that he's just ruined it and that can't tell you how many situations I've been in like that. <laughs> like just in terms of trickery, you know, that didn't need to happen. And that weird, the shift in the atmosphere and the shift in the tone is just perfect. Like I, I really, it's it's a very small scene in the grand scheme of things, but it really stuck out to me because it made me realize that like once a trickery happens once someone is being manipulated into something even even though the manipulation is easily you can get out of it easily it's just the fact that it's there you know and that's like a perfect example of like not that that's rape culture but it's got some shades of it you know like it's got something in there that just fucks it up for everyone the fact that cassie like the main character she didn't she didn't comply was really cool yeah, but you could see like the the very visible disappointment on her face as she was walking away. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, the way that Bo Burnham's character, you know, he had that sort of self aware, self deprecating thing, like, oh no, I did ruin it, didn't I? And yeah, it's like, yeah, you did, yeah. and you're like acknowledging it. This like meta awareness of it doesn't really fix it, which I guess is like a, a a thing. It is part of like this culture where it's like. You know, if you have enough guys who say that they're feminists and who are like, well, I acknowledge my yeah. privilege and, you know, what I've done in the past or currently that could be considered problematic or whatever. Yeah. Um, the, just like saying that and knowing that and like reading some books, like that's not enough. No, he's such a good encapsulation of that because not only does it not make it OK, but you say that you want all of these things. You say that you want to be this person, but the second it threatens your way of life. Yeah. Um, you opt out of it immediately. Yeah. And, and you, you make have excuses. no real spine. But yeah, it's it feels like a mirror that it's placing on society, whether it's the institutions or the people that engage in rape culture or misogyny. It's like a mirror up to it in a way that like the problem is I don't know if people are going to watch this, you know, if your normal dickhead from like Midwest somewhere is going to watch this and have it hit home. Don't think that's the point of it. It yeah, is like, definitely who 
cares, honestly, if, yeah. you know, that viewer or whatever other viewer watches it. Yeah. And it's, and again, like, it, this film is perfect in telling you that these people know how to disengage themselves from these situations and feel like they're not complicit in it, even though they definitely are. <laughs> but um, it's... Uh, it's a really I I kind of think it's a great attempt at a movie from Emerald Fennel. I I genuinely was taken aback by how good it was. The way it was shot was really cool. Like the the penultimate scene that we keep going on about, which I'm not going to give away, um, is very eerie and is done in a way that is sickening. Honestly, mm-hmm. yeah, it just it it made me think a lot about rape, revenge, and like revenge fantasies entailing women that have been wronged. It's just, the thing is, like, I don't know where that genre is going anymore. I don't know. It's it's making me think. Like, I don't know how many more new ways you can do this. I think, like, Promising Young Woman is refreshing. But I don't know if I've, like, maxed out on it. Which I guess I'll find out the next time I watch one. (laughs) All right, so that's Promising Young Woman. Uh, how about you, Jenny? What was your film of choice this week? I watched uh, Sound of Metal, which is a film directed and written by Darius Martyr, starring Riz Ahmed, Olivia Cook, and Paul Racy. Mm. Um, so it was released in theaters around Thanksgiving last year, and then it moved on to Amazon for streaming, so you can watch it there now. I wanted to watch it because I know it was sort of making the rounds and received some critical acclaim late last year, like on some people's uh, Best of 2020 list. So I was curious, and I like Riz Ahmed generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. the film is about this protagonist, Ruben. He's a drummer in a metal bands, and he's a recovering heroin addict who one day suddenly loses his hearing and eventually reluctantly moves into a commune for deaf recovering addicts. Mm-hmm. So it is really interesting, namely, I think, for... The use of sound in this film, one of its biggest sort of highlights is just like how sound design is used to illustrate or replicate for hearing audiences this experience of losing your hearing and all the different stages you go through. Um, so shout out to sound designer Nicholas Becker. So from like beginning to end, it goes through each stage really carefully and is like a pretty interesting just like sonic experience that I think would sound amazing in a theater like the initial like sound of the, the concerts and the crash of his drums to like this kind of ASMR aspect of how he starts his morning routine. Um, and then suddenly losing the hearing and what that sounds like to have everything muffled and like sound far away when uh, it's all happening around you. And then, you know, further on the film, the distortion of getting cochlear like implants and how it's not at all what he expected. It's like screechy and metallic and honestly like a headache. And in that final moment, there's just like the beauty of the still and silence. Mm-hmm. So it's a whole journey, like a whole narrative arc of its own, just like the yeah. sound design itself. So that was that was really cool. Um, I wish I had been able to see it in a theater. But... I know. I agree with you completely. I think, you know, one of the best things about storytelling is show, don't tell. Uh, with yeah. anything that's happening with a narrative arc, but it was really cool to see here also. Yes, um, yeah. <laughs> here don't tell. Um, which which <laughs> is exactly what what I guess they were going for. Yeah, man, what an incredible experience. Yeah, I I, and- I had honestly, I'm 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 gonna be honest with you. This 
film destroyed me emotionally. Yeah. What did you think of it? Yeah, I really liked the emotional aspect as well. It talks about other themes like addiction and relationships and what it is to grow up, grow apart, and come to terms and to peace with yourself. Um, yeah. So I thought the the sort of like interweaving of all these different themes you know, as they may or may not relate to this moment and this time in this experience when Riz's character is is losing his hearing. I thought that was really well done. And I think it was it was quiet and not particularly showy, but it was impactful still. For sure. I mean, through this character, you empathize or you try and understand how you would act if this happened to you, because it is so sudden, right? Mm -hmm. He literally just suddenly loses his hearing and um obviously shout out to Riz Ahmed the his panic in his eyes yeah dude are you kidding me like suddenly you can do something and then you can't the next minute it's it takes you out of it completely and it kind of puts you in his shoes but at the same time you really understand his whether it's his unacceptance with his new situation all the way until him trying to figure out a resolution all the way until him getting to the resolution that he ne- didn't necessarily see for himself, but this is the right one. Yeah. Um, that's how life is. Like, you get the rug pulled out from underneath you, you fight against it, you try and find a solution, it's not the right one, but the right one finds you anyway. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's a journey about someone losing their hearing, but it's also, a, it's a lesson in life, man. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is what really resonated with me a lot by the end. Right. Yeah, his performance is great. You know, he, I think he is a type of actor to embed, like, really deeply in, in his roles. So for this one, I know he learned how to play the drums. He also learned mm-hmm. uh, ASL or American Sign Language. And mm-hmm. he brought depth to a character that is a bit of a blank slate like we don't really know much about Ruben in terms of his past or even his interests or personality or things like that but he still managed to bring some depth there and I think one of the some of the best moments are when he loses control of that blank slate and Mm -hmm. he lashes out he gets physical he screams he yeah and so it, it is really reflective of the kind of experience of just this frustration and anger building and building and building and finally it has to come out and just like the really quick lashes and yeah that was like kind of astonishing and I think he's gonna be in the running for yeah. different awards of this yeah I thought it was cool that pretty much everyone, apart from Paul Racy, who grew up with deaf parents, hence knows sign language. Everyone in the film that is deaf is deaf, apart from Riz Ahmed and Paul Racy. So they hired deaf actors, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to talk more about the, just like the betrayal of deafness in here. So yeah, I was curious to see what people in the actual like deaf community were saying about this. And I think these arguments are totally valid. Like, first of which is that this is clearly made for, you know, people who can hear. Mm-hmm. Um, of course. And I, I think, mean, yeah, and I think yeah. it was, that was a deliberate choice. I, I do, I did read that, like, you know, some viewers who are deaf felt that it was a little bit too prescriptive, like, in betraying mm. this choice between, you know, all or nothing, you can choose to be in the deaf community and use ASL, or you can choose to go out in the hearing world and have, like, cochlear implants and treat this more mm. as, like, a medical condition to be fixed. Right. Um, I saw criticism that that is, like, portrayed as mutually exclusive when mm-hmm. it, it's not. Like, people... no can do both of these things or one of these things or the other or they can supplement with different kind of things like whatever sort of makes it work 
And also, like, uh, the uh, deaf writer Sarah Novick, she wrote for for Mike. Like, if if music means so much to to Ruben, who's a drummer, then why does he? You know, he tries it at once. And then he gives up on it. Um, of mm-hmm. course, this is only like a snapshot of like a moment in time. Yeah. It doesn't show like what his whole life journey is going to be about. Yeah. But, you know, she pointed out there are there are deaf musicians um, and like in percussion in particular, yeah. you can sort of feel the vibrations of the drums and the cymbals. So mm-hmm. it's a like not that he has to give up his his passion for music immediately. But it on any kind of film where it tries to show a different point of view or sort of like a different subject than we're used to seeing, I think there are going to be these sort of like issues with, you know, what does it mean to just portray everything with this one character? Um, yeah. I, I like the conclusion because I thought it tracked with Ruben's own personal journey beyond his loss Absolutely. of hearing, but with his, yeah, his like addiction and like yep. the way he's so constantly restless and always needs to find something to do and needs yeah. to be in motion all the time. And finally he can, he can rest and listen to the silence and it's okay. Yeah. Well, his so I, I understand where Sarah Novik is coming from. However, I agree with you with regards to like, it's accurate to his personal journey because throughout most of the film Ruben thinks that he's gonna go back to where he was before he lost his hearing he feels like all he needs to do is get the surgery Mm -hmm. and then everything's gonna go back to normal so as far as he's concerned he doesn't need to pursue his music while he's in this in his mind temporary state he thinks of of it as a temporary state Yeah. yeah and on top of all of that he loves music but he loves music because it's he does it with his girlfriend he's in a band with his girlfriend that basically they both saved each other out yeah. of addiction mm-hmm. right so music and this this woman in his life are inextricably linked and he loses them both yeah at the same time so for him he's like as long as i get a as long as soon as i get the surgery i'm gonna go find her and then we're gonna go back to, we're gonna go back on tour everything's gonna go back to normal we're gonna get back in our caravan and obviously his whole thing is that he cannot adjust to this new normal yeah you know what's tough about movies like this that represent you know whether whether it's a character that's not necessarily able-bodied it's just tough like i i feel i feel like really annoyed that these films are so few and far in between that you can't showcase the the different facets of it and then so obviously everyone that watches it that's from that community has to be like hey um yeah deaf musicians exist and it isn't like the end of the world if you lose your hearing if you're a musician but maybe to this one particular character yeah you know it means that yeah Yeah, it is always that's always the problem with you know talking about any idea of like representation or finally being able to able to see some different reality yeah. reflected on the screen. But yeah, interestingly, you know, speaking of this kind of criticism, and in particular, the the note about it possibly being a little bit too prescriptive, mm-hmm. like all or nothing in one or the other. Variety critic uh, Owen Gleiberman, he had a review that I thought was very funny. Mm. He sort of arrived at the same conclusion that it was like too prescriptive in this one way, mm. but from the opposite sort of rationale, where he yeah. was, he called it a doctrinaire drama and s- complained that it portrays, like, it prescribes the woke, quote-unquote, the woke way to suffer catastrophic hearing loss. Um, huh. So it, I just found it funny because, you know, I can see, like, the the critics who are deaf, like, they're noting that this is a little bit pres- too prescriptive or, like, mutually exclusive, these choices that are being presented. But, but him, you know, the idea of accepting that this is, you know, a new reality for this particular character to face... 
his view, Owen Gliverman's view was like, why are these social justice, like, where they're trying to make it so that a, a disability like deafness or hard of hearing, like, they accept it. That is woke culture. And that's, oh my god. It's not? I don't know. I just thought of a funny review as just like a, a side comment. But as opposed to what? <laughs> Just the second that you prescribe like that wokeness label, I'm already like, fuck off. Yeah, I mean that's a signal that you know he's not treating this in really good faith. But I do think there, you're there's merit to like the the question of like, you know, is everyone who gets cochlear earplants does that mean they're not you know accepting of the deaf community or they don't consider them themselves a part of the deaf community? And like, of course, no, no, that's yeah, not, not not everyone thinks that, and maybe probably most people don't think that. Yeah. Um. So there's like room for like the nuance in between. For you to be able to choose both ASL and like implants or for you to choose like just ASL or, you know, other sort of assisted different ways of of learning communication with, you know, both among the deaf community and among hearing audiences. So there's a whole range between. um, But yeah, it's a it's an interesting discussion, especially, of course, like as people who are squarely in like the the hearing community side of things. Mm -hmm. These are just things that we in general, like have not had to confront or think about much before. Um, so as like corny as it is, and of course, like it is like an, an interesting vehicle to be able to think about these things more. Yeah. And for that, I, I appreciate the movie as well as just for like a, as a work of cinema itself. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a good film. It's a good film, man. Uh, this week for culture notes, unfortunately we find ourselves having to talk about, a certain alleged cannibal fetishist, oh Army God. Hammer. So, <laughs> Army Hammer, I'm not even sure exactly what kicked this off, but appara- there were just, like, DM screenshots going around. Apparently, they were allegedly from him sent to various women who he's been involved with. I don't know. He, like, fucks around a lot. Yeah, he's a whore. All these different elements of, like, like cannibalism, fetishism, like, wanting to eat people's ribs or bite people's necks and drink their blood like drink their blood and at first it was hard to tell if this was just like a huge running joke that like everyone in like fandom was like part of and riffing off of yeah or or if this is real yeah especially because like a lot in the midst of the blood drinking and the cannibalism there were also these dms where he was talking about being basically like the daddy and like doing like this whole dominant subordinate thing with the women that he was talking to i initially thought that there's no way these can be real and it's like just twitter being funny like because we've all decided that he's like the corny guy that pretends to be the dom but like there's nothing cornier than a straight male dom and we're just like building off of that joke but then he uh i guess quit a film that he was gonna be in and then and then i was like oh there's some truth to this maybe yeah (laughs) what did you think his excuse his excuse when he quit the film which was let's see Shotgun Wedding, produced by Jayla and Ryan Reynolds. Um, he said, like, you know, among these absurd rumors, or whatever, I have, I like have to go be with my children. I can't imagine leaving them for like four months or something. And then like page six came out with a thing. They talked to an actual like ex of his, and she was like, "Oh yeah, he wanted to barbecue and eat me." Yeah, um, like her rib. Yeah, and so it seems like. I don't know. It's it's not the first time that weird like DMs from him and and you know various girls he's like fucking around with have surfaced. Yeah. Um, but these are like kind of notable and that it's like actually somewhat derailing his career apparently. Mm-hmm. And like also their actual 
kind of like abuse allegations yeah. sort of embedded within the weird rib or like feet or whatever stuff. Here's the thing, like with with Dom, not that I know, but with Dom sub uh, relationship, like rape fantasy of the kinks, um, and he talks about that, but then he mentions jokingly or like in passing, either forcing himself or making the the girl feel uncomfortable in certain situations. Yeah, it's it's a fucking mess, man. Like back when back when like his initial back in the day DMs first came out, it was cringe because this is a whole fucking movie star and he's not even sure. You know what I mean? Like you <laughs> ha- as a man of like over 6 feet, you'd expect him to have some some semblance of stature about him. So a little more dignity. Yeah. <laughs> but like instead, um he comes out to be this fucking corny Oh, just disgusting. Oh, the second I read those, I was like, oh my God. Not that I ever found him hot because he's just like that flavor of American symmetry that just doesn't do anything for me. But it just, oh, like just makes me, just my butt cheek clench constantly. <laughs> and then like, so when these came out, it was just like, this A, it tracks, but B, you cannot be serious at the same time. Yeah, what what do we take away from all of this, Jenny? Like, I don't really know if there's a good takeaway, except um, apparently that you know former BuzzFeed culture writer Anne Helen Peterson, her big magnum opus about Army Hammer a few years ago, that she like that got her harassed by Army stands for months. Apparently, she, some people are like she's she was right all along. Yeah. Like the signs were all there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Anna Peel, writer Anna Peel, um, she tweeted a link to Anne Helen Peterson's article and she was like, I once mentioned Army Hammer during an interview with a much loved actor. Who knows who that actor is, but Leak we'll it. take your guesses. Um, <laughs> the actor asked Anna to turn off the recorder so he could talk about how this BuzzFeed feature got Army Hammer exactly right. Fuck and the, the piece was essentially like about how Army Hammer has been trying to like Hollywood and whatever powers that be have been trying to make him a thing for a decade, a literal decade. And the fact that he's been given so many chances to make this work, despite, you know, maybe not quite having that thing that makes it yet. It's like sort of emblematic of how, you know, people like him, you know, these ostensibly handsome, like white, cis, straight men, and also happens to be the great grandson of an oil tycoon. They just have like all the chances in the world and maybe he doesn't really deserve it. Um, Army Hammer took like big issue with this piece when it came out. Of course he did. (laughs) He was very sensitive about it. But yeah, now it seems like things are kind of falling around him. Like the fact that he actually left a movie to because of all the buzz happening right now is kind of astonishing because Normally you would just like swat things like this away and just like leave it up to your PR team or just like fucking ignore it and leave it to like be an in-fandom joke or something. But it's wild. I don't know. I'm kind of sad because it like takes away, I think it probably would take away any momentum for there being a Call Me By Your Name sequel, which I think there was supposed to be like in the works eventually. Yeah, it would have been nice to to see them together again in that film, but... If I if I have to read another DM of Army Hammer chatting to some random girl that's just trying to be the next movie star, bless her, I d- I'm gonna scream. That's where I'm at. And with with that, <laughs> I guess that's all we have to say about Army Hammer. Uh, I hope we don't have to see any more of this ever. Army Hammer will not be missed, but uh, we would love to see more of Riz Ahmed. Congrats to Riz Ahmed, by the way, on his recent marriage. 
that's it this week for Culture Notes. Thank you so much for listening. If you're watching anything that you think we should check out, let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com or you can just at us or DM us at criticismisdead, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. For extended show notes, Jenny is an absolute superstar and will send out our substack, criticismisdead.substack.com, where she will include links to everything that we've talked about and then some. Um, so please subscribe. It's always a joy to read it first and listen. Or you can do it, you know, listen first, then read. It doesn't matter. But as always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts with a sweet, sweet five stars. Big shout out to the recent reviews that we got, actually. Shout out to you guys. Thank you so much for the kind words. Uh, would love to see some more from the rest of our listeners. No, you're there. But yeah, thank you so much. Tell a friend uh, and see you next week. Bye. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelham Keskin Lu and Jenny Ji Jung. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Lu.